in that last scene where Jesus asked her, do you um, finally broke, when she, basically the way it worked is, is you know, there's three words for, um, three important words for love in the Greek, original Greek, and two of those words were used in that passage. Um, so the first word that Jesus used was, Peter, do you agape me? And that's a powerful word. It's far more powerful than the more erotic, romantic word, eros, which is not even found in the Greek New Testament. And, and, and it's, it's an overwhelming word. And Peter, as you could see, could not respond back to Jesus and say, yes, Jesus, I do agape you. So he changed the word, and we don't see that in the English. He changed the word and says, Lord, you know that I phileo you, which means I love you as a friend. So you could almost interpret that as, as Peter friend-zoning Jesus, although I don't quite think that was his, his intention. It's more a matter of when you're so overwhelmed by someone's presence, you're so overwhelmed by your own need and yearning for them that you quite, can't quite grasp what the other person is offering you. Maybe sort of on human terms, it'd be as if you've loved a girl all your life. And she finally says to you, do you want to be my boyfriend? And if you've been yearning and longing for those words, you may not be able to respond. You might stutter out, well, I at least want to be your friend. I think it was more like that. And then Jesus then changed words and asked her a second time. Uh, sorry, no, he asked her a second time. Again, Peter, will you agape me? powerful God love. And again, Peter couldn't say yes. Lord, you know everything. You know that I phileo you. And then the third time Jesus came down a notch, or a hundred notches really, and says, okay, Peter, do you phileo me? Yes, Lord. What a relief. Yes, I do. I do phileo you. Um, so, and again, you know that Peter asked three times because Jesus asked Peter three times because Peter denied Jesus three times. So let's go back and look at that story. Um, it's found in Gospel of Mark chapter 14. I, I want to invite you guys to take out your, your cell phones and look it up if you want a, a good place, it would be biblegateway.com is always a good, is a good one. But uh, read along with me, and um, I'm going to jump down before anyone notices and pick up my Bible, which I forgot. Okay, so, um, John, at least Mark chapter 14. Before I read this, though, I, I want to just preface this with um, an outline of um, my talk tonight. Um, I'm an English professor, in case you haven't met me. Um, I, um, and so I tend to use metaphors a lot to try to explain things. Um, so I was thinking of what metaphors can I use to explain this amazing chapter, um, Mark 14. And I came up with three that I'd like to share with you tonight. Um, and they are, number one, quantum mechanics, <laughs> or what Einstein referred it to as spooky action from a distance, because it is so weird, so whacked out, he couldn't even believe it could be true. 
The second metaphor I'd like to use is the time-space fabric, and that's a metaphor which Einstein came up with. Notice that science, scientists themselves have to use metaphors, the stuff of poets, in order to say what they're trying to say, because it's just so hard to explain. So, first one is spooky action from a distance. The second one is the time-space fabric. And the third metaphor I'm going to be using here is the metaphor of a Greek tragedy, which is very different from what you might know of tragedy, which comes from Shakespeare, Shakespearean tragedy. These are the three I'm going to use. So, before, I, I, before we read this, let me just explain those very quickly. Spooky action from a distance uh, basically is um, what scientists have found. If you take two elements, it could be a photon or an electron um, or a neutron, if you take two elements out of the same molecule, essentially, they somehow seem to be able to communicate with each other over vast spaces instantly. Not at the speed of light, I mean instantly. So you take out one electron, you take out another electron from the same, same um, essentially, home, same molecule. If you put a positive spin on this one, this one will automatically go negative. So we're going to do that like thumbs up, thumbs down. If you put this one in a positive spin, this one will spin negatively, instantly. They've tried separating those out. I know they, they did an experiment where one particle was taken to Los Angeles, and the other particle was left in Europe. And without any kind of communication between scientists, they, the one scientist in Los Angeles turned his uh, electron into a negative charge, and instantly, not at the speed of light, instantly, the other uh, particle in Europe went positive. And they were absolutely, to put it mildly, freaked out by this. It seems like this, that these elements would do this even if they were separated by hundreds of light years. The communication seems to be instant, and it violates everything we know about the universe, that nothing can go faster than the speed of light. So what on earth does that have to do with Mark 14? <coughs> we'll read it and find out. So the second one, I'm going to be short on this one. The second one, a metaphor I'm going to be using is, is that um, scientists have described the entire universe <coughs> as a space-time fabric. Uh, you can no longer separate space from time. Um, they are inextricably intertwined within each other. So in other words, if you look out at a model of the, of the, uh, of the universe, um, and you're looking back in space um, to a star that's five light years away from us, you're also looking five years back in time. You cannot unwind or disconnect time from space. You can on Earth, but in the vastness of, of the universe, time is space. Space is time. So, um, the third one is, is the one of, of the, the um, a Greek tragedy. I've called Peter's denial of Christ here a Greek tragedy because unlike an, a, a Shakespeare tragedy, in a Greek tragedy, you, in, first of all, in a Shakespeare tragedy, a great man falls because of some negative quality he has, whether it's jealousy or anger or rage, one of the seven deadly sins. Um, and so that's why he falls. In a Greek tragedy, the hero doesn't fall necessarily because of a personal fault. He falls because 
he's, it's been fated that he falls. It's been prophesied that he falls. The oracles have declared it, such as, the, you know, the, the most famous example of this would be Oedipus. Oedipus, it was, it, there was a, um, a prophecy that Oedipus, when he grew up, would, you know the story, murder his mother, sorry, murder his father, fall in love with his mother, and marry her. It's about the worst thing you could possibly imagine. He was so freaked out by this, he ran away from home, and it ended up happening in any way. So, in what way is Peter a Greek tragedy? So, let's read Mark's 14 and see if these three metaphors make sense. We're not going to read the whole 14. Um, we're going to begin with um, the Lord's Supper. Let's start with 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they had sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into a city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And when, wherever he enters, say that to the master of the house, the teacher says, no name, just the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat to the, uh, the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepared for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. That's a, that'll destroy any party right there. He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Jesus is very specific in his prophetic utterances. For the man, the son of man, that's God, uh, Jesus, for the son of man goes as is written of him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, I guess the party continued, and as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, notice, he said this to them after they had drunk it. Oh, by the way, this is my blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. Jesus is full of bad news prophecies here. This is the third one. You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Even though they all fall away, I will not. No, sorry, and Peter said to him, Jesus, even though they all fall away, I will not. 
And that's probably how his chest sounded. <laughs> but after I'm raised up, sorry, I'm losing my place here. This is small print and my eyes are getting old. Um, Peter said to him, hey, they may fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. That one's not bad enough. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, this hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup of suffering from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, he always says to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour with me? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and wrote with him a crowd of swords and clubs from the chief priests and scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer, notice Mark doesn't even use his name, the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under God. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword. We all know who that was, Peter, because the other three Gospels mentioned Peter as the one who chopped off the guard's ear. For some reason, Mark doesn't mention that. But we do know it is Peter. And, um, sorry, lost my place here again. So he drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out of the, against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And then, of course, the last part here is about the um, denial three times where Jesus uh, he, he denies Jesus. And what's interesting is the way the story is told, the last part of chapter 14, is it's told as a sort of in a sort of a sandwich format. There's the main story of Jesus put on trial, but in between the story of the trial is Peter put on trial by those who were around the fireplace. So there's like two plots going on, the main plot and then the subplot. 
And um, I'm going to stop right there. And what, I'd, what I'm going to need, I'm going to do something that, that, that could, this whole thing could be a total mess, because I haven't choreographed this. But rather than continuing to preach, would you guys be willing to come up? I, I need about seven volunteers to come up and help me demonstrate the three metaphors I'm going to explain over here. Any seven, and, and I'll assign your parts. I won't ask you to do anything too embarrassing, I promise you. No talking. So um, don't make me pick on you. But yeah, seven, that'll be great. <clears throat> okay. Josiah, come on. I've got a part for you. I won't make you talk, I promise you. If you could hold that. Oh, yes, of course. And Micah, at least Josiah, I'm going to have you go to this side, and I'd like you to hold this over here. I'll tell you what your parts are later. Are you new? Uh, yeah, he, he just turned 18, yeah. That's crazy. This is Josiah, my third son. Uh, he's the king. My other two sons are a prophet and a spy. So, all right. So, um, I'd like you guys to take these and just sort of pass that on. What I'm going to demonstrate, I'm going to demonstrate for you what's going on in, in, in chapter 14. Chapter 14 is an amazing chapter. There's so much going on over here. But did you notice how Jesus was constantly going from the present tense to the past to the future, to the present to the past to the future, jumping around as if he was a time traveler? Did you notice that? Okay. We start off with, first of all, the center scene is, is, is the Last Supper. So I would like Jesus, if you could be in the middle here, just like over here. Well, he just looks like, doesn't he look like Jesus? I don't know. Maybe I should have chosen Andrew. Maybe, maybe we stereotyped Jesus and Andrew is how Jesus looked. I don't know. Okay, so we're going to have, first of all, chapter 14 begins with a woman. You're going to be standing right next to Jesus over here. Yeah. You're the woman who anoints, who anoints Jesus with the expensive oil. I think you guys have already had a sermon on that one, right? Okay, so we'll just, won't spend too much time on that. And then we have Judas. I'm sorry. But you were just, you were just next. And then Peter. Now, he does look like Peter, don't you think? Scruffy Peter. No, I'm sorry. Anyway. Okay. But I'd like you guys to, I'd like you guys to, Josiah. No, okay. I'd like you guys to huddle because you're around the table. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Okay, so I'm going to need... Actually, you can just fall into that for now. How's that? Okay. What I'm, what I'm trying to picture here again is, um, first of all, Jesus himself speaks about himself in the past, the present, and the future with, with a great deal of ease. Think about his name. He is God, and so his name is what? What's God's name? He has a name, you know. Yahweh, yeah, Yehovah or Yahweh. And Yahweh literally means, in the Greek apparently, it's, it's usually translated as I am. But that's all-inclusive. In the Hebrew, apparently, that verb has a sort of a, a far wider coverage. It covers I was, I am, and it also means I will be. As we know, God is not in time. 
right? <coughs> he's like the author of a book that you are in, and he's already finished the book, it's written, he knows exactly what you're going to do, and um, you don't know what you're going to do yet, but that doesn't mean it's not done. He's outside of time, and you are one of the main characters in his book. So what Christ is doing here as God, he's stepping into time, because he knows that you know, we roll differently and time rolls differently for us than it does for someone who's out of time. So here's Jesus at the table with his disciples in the present tense. <laughs> but you are constantly connecting with, and I'd like you to take this and drop that, because I've got three Jesuses over here. We've got the Jesus of the Old Testament. I'll explain. We've got the Jesus who died on the cross, came back to life again. We might need a fourth Jesus for that, but we'll keep it at three. And you're the Jesus in the present tense. This Jesus has been trying to tell his disciples for a long, long time that he's going to die. Three years, he's been telling them in every way possible, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. But if you notice, they don't get it. They simply don't get it. The only person in this play, should we call it, who did get it is, no, is this woman. You notice what she did. She came to this feast and weeping, she poured oil worth an entire year's salary. So let's say $40,000. And she poured this oil a total waste over Jesus' head. And then she started, didn't she also do the feet? Was that another time? I think she did the feet too. But she's... Okay. But she did pour the expensive nadir over her over head. And, and everyone else looked at this with disgust. Even the disciples looked at this with a sense of disgust. What a waste. This money could have been sold and given to the poor. Jesus' response is very interesting. Jesus said, she gets it. She's preparing me for my death. And the nadir that she put on, on, on Jesus was, in fact, something that you'd put on someone preparing for death. So she got it. The disciples didn't get it. The next person we see here is, of course, <coughs> uh, your words to Judas. And notice that, first of all, everything Jesus says is is framed from some prophecy in, in, in the Bible, okay? He, he's very clear to say when he talks about his death that my death has been prophesied from the beginning of the world. Um, the first time we see this is essentially with the blood sacrifice with Cain and Abel. Abel's sacrifice was accepted because there's a blood sacrifice. Without the spilling of blood, there's no remission of sins. So that there was foreshadowing, beginning the whole foreshadowing process in the Old Testament. Every book of the Old Testament foreshadows in some way the coming death of Christ. So Jesus always talks about himself somewhat in the past tense. In fact, when they were about ready to kill him, um, he said to the Pharisees when they asked him, who do you think you are? Do you think you're older than Moses? And he said something outrageous. He said, before Moses was, I am. Okay, that's a word loaded with just incredible things. It means I am God. And of course, at that point, they pick up stones in the body, put him to death. So what I'm trying to communicate over here is <laughs> everything over here is connected 
to the past. It's a present scene around the table, but this entire scene is intimately connected to the past. Everything is predicted, everything's already been said. In fact, from God's perspective, it's already done, because God, in fact, is outside of time. Jesus talks about this as if it's quite normal, but to us who are stuck in time, of course, it's not normal. Peter, you, and, and this is often missed when I've heard sermons on this, um, the reason you denied Jesus three times is because Jesus said you would deny me three times. And he said you would deny, he, the, the, here's the thing. First of all, you said, notice you said to everybody, you will all leave me. You will all deny me. But Peter said, no, not me. I won't deny you. And then Jesus honed in on Peter and said, oh, oh yes, you will. You, in fact, today. No, 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 tonight. Well, let me be more specific. Not only today, not only tonight, but before the cock crows, let's say twice, you will deny me what, three times. Can I be any, any, any more specific? You know, Jesus was making quite clear that when you deny me, it won't be a coincidence because it'll happen exactly the way I said it. How would you feel if your mother or your girlfriend or your boyfriend said to you, today or this afternoon, after College Composition 101, right outside, while you're eating your, your donut, you will grab another girl, kiss her, and cheat on me. You know? I mean, it's, 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 it's an outrageous, shocking thing to say to someone you love. But Jesus said it. And what is amazing is that he wasn't repeating a prophecy found in the Old Testament. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it say, this guy Peter or some dude will betray the master uh, three times after the cock crows twice. That's not found anywhere. That prophecy that Jesus Jesus, sorry, put onto Peter was something he came up with right then. The prophecy, when he prophesied that essentially everyone would deny me, all of you, he said, then he quoted from the Old Testament. But when he spoke to Peter, he didn't quote from the Old Testament. That one, because he was challenged, he said, all right, right now I'm making up a new prophecy. It's going gonna, it's gonna to go like this. So, every time Jesus opens his mouth, he brings in the past, and he brings in the future. It was said, but I say. The entire Sermon on the Mount, it was said, but I say. Jesus never speaks without bringing in or connecting together, interweaving the past, the present, and the future. So, here's the first analogy, or the first metaphor I'm using. Space, <coughs> or the universe, is a fabric made up of time and space. You can't separate the two. It's just like the way the Old Testament works. Everything that is in the future has already been prophesied. It's already happened. Everything in the past is connected to everything in the future, which is connected to everything in the present. We, in our culture, guys, we don't function. We don't know how to think that way. We are obsessed about the present. But there are cultures who take the past 
and the future more seriously. Who's seen Coco? Coco. Okay, so this great movie, about, and, and what you see here is another culture, <coughs> a, the Mexican culture, which takes death and the afterlife way more seriously than we in America do. In America, we don't like to celebrate death. <coughs> in Mexico, they love to celebrate it. Day of the Dead, Dia de las Muertas. They love to celebrate it. They have a greater sense in their culture of the future and how what I do here affects the future, which is, comes from the past. There's more of a recognition that this is what the universe is like. In the universe, and scientists, I, th I think the whole scientific discovery that the universe cannot be divided into past, present, and future because it's already all the way out there. Okay, so you look at a picture of the universe. <coughs> scientists have estimated the universe is 13 point something billion years old going back to the Big Bang. But we also know that when you look back as far as you can look with a telescope, you're not just going further and further in distance, you're going further and further back in time. And so you cannot separate the two. The, the two are completely enmeshed within each other. So um, I have a few minutes. I need to wrap this up. The second metaphor I wanted to touch on here is just the whole idea of um, the whole idea of quantum theory. The reason why Peter denied Christ seems to be whacked out. Why would he do it just because Jesus said he would do it? It's, it's again, it's a, the prophecy of Christ is a, in that sense, a spooky action from a distance. It, so where's free will in all of this? And, and here's the paradox, because, and this is, this is very much how the quantum world is. If you look at the quantum world, as scientists say, it, it makes no sense. Um, and when you look deeply enough at your faith and our spiritual faith, it also doesn't appear to make any sense. God knows exactly what you are going to do. In fact, you've already done it, because the book's been written. But you have the freedom to do whatever you want to do. That's a, something that top theologians have been trying to solve for 2,000 years. And I think it's, it's similar to the whole idea of scientists struggling over the spooky action from a distance. It doesn't make sense. You, you may think the universe makes sense if you don't look too hard. But once you start really looking deeply, it makes less and less sense. It's wilder, it's weirder than we ever would have imagined. And the same thing is true for God. God is wilder and weirder and more loving and more terrifying and more incredible than anything we can possibly imagine in our temporal world. And so I want to just leave you with this challenge when it comes to Peter. You are not just who you are today. You're not just who you are in the present. Miranda, how old are you? What's your age? Sorry, am I getting your name wrong again? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, you're 19. Okay, no you're not. Again, because, yeah, okay. you just think you are, but in fact you are, by God's account, you're also 20 and 21 and 98 and two months old.
God does not see you just as a 19-year-old. He's out of time. He sees you as everything. Just as he saw Peter as a sinner, and he saw Peter as well as someone who had received grace and who had been reconciled to himself. And so here's the thing. God knows exactly what you're going to do. And one of the things that, another, another reason he told Peter he'd do what he did is because he said, Satan has given me permission, Peter, to sift you, to test you, because I want you to be, as Lindy's beautiful poem describes, I want you to be the rock on which I build the church. And Peter's often recognized as the first pope of the church, um, the one on which Christ built his rock. So he didn't only say to Peter, Peter, you will deny me three times. He said to him also, yes, you are the rock. I will build my church on you. And so I, I, I want you to sort of see in this that part of God's plan for your life, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Part of that is to suffer. Part of that is to fall. Part of that is to be a total wreck and a total failure. That's always a part of God's plan for you. What he's looking at is how do you learn from that? What happens as a result of the fall? Um, because he has <coughs> other things he wants to say about you as well. Uh, he wants to reconcile with you. He wants to sit at the, on the beach and ask you, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? These are all things that um, Christ uh, wants in a relationship with us.